If you want to make things that make things better, have fun doing it, and learn to help yourself and everyone around you flourish, well, you've come to the right place. Welcome to Enliven. This is the show where we explore what's possible and the people, the principles, and the practices that are going to help you build enlivening products and enlivening organizations. I'm your host, Andrew Skatsko, and my guest in this episode is Dr. Matthew Cook of BioReset Medical. Dr. Cook is one of the most cutting-edge doctors I have come across. He's a board-certified anesthesiologist with over 20 years of experience in medical practice who, as he shares in this conversation, pivoted his practice towards functional and integrative medicine and is now a leader in those fields. In his practice, Dr. Cook has worked with a huge range of patients, everything from top-tier pro athletes and teams to soldiers recovering from the ravages of war to normal people like you and me and everything in between. Adding on to the work he's done in non-surgical therapies for physical regeneration and injury recovery, Dr. Cook is now out on the edge of a new field, the transformative therapies available for mental health. Now, some of these therapies have proven particularly effective for especially difficult cases of anxiety, PTSD, and treatment-resistant depression. We discuss everything from functional medicine to the specialized use of ketamine to treat anxiety, depression, trauma, PTSD, and other mental health issues. What is the biology and the psychology and the neurology of those moments that trigger us where we're not at our best and what's going on and what do we do about it? How do we start scaling these interventions beyond the individual level? And how can we each think about creating our own life and navigating difficult choices like Dr. Cook has? Now, one thing I especially love about Dr. Cook is the generosity, the openness, and the warmth that he brings to all of his interactions and to his practice. And I think you're going to feel that too. So without any further ado, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Dr. Matthew Cook. Well, officially, Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here today. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks. One of the things that uh, I thought would be an interesting way to start this off is I, a way I heard you describe a big shift in your life, which is that you know, as as a doctor, you spent the first you know significant chunk of your career you used to knock people out, but now you wake them up. Tell me what that means to you. My first half of my career, I I was an anesthes I am an anesthesiologist, and so what I would do is I would basically knock people out a hundred percent by giving them general anesthesia or else I would do nerve blocks and then give them sedation and then guide them through surgeries. And so we were, that was basically what I did. And then now uh, I'm using the same techniques that come from the anesthesia world to try to physiologically turn people's brains on and, and, and uh, reset the body, which is why my company is called bio reset. How did that shift happen for you? Like what was, was there a, a triggering event for you that like what caused you to make that shift in your own life? I had always wanted to do integrative medicine, and yet you go um, you go to a medical medical school and it's a gigantic institution, and so then you're you're you sort of go on to different services, and each service has an identity and kind of a consciousness to it. Okay, and so. Um, and, and it's, you, when you go onto a service, you'll, you'll show up and so you show up in surgery. And so they're all kind of crazy and super hardworking and wonderful. But, and so then you'll, you relate to them and you're like, oh, I don't think I want to be like this because it's just, and so then you go to family medicine, you relate to them and you go to psychiatry. So you're floating around and, when I got and I I was I had the wool pulled over my eyes a little bit because I went into anesthesia mm-hmm. and they were by far the coolest people in the hospital. 
And so just, just for context, like help me locate this in time. Like, is this when you're in med school? Is this after med school? Like, where are we? This is when I'm in in medical school. I'm in med. So this is 1997, 697. Okay. So you're in the middle of med school. I'm in the middle of med school and it's, it's um, the anesthesiologists are like lights out the coolest, nicest people, and they seem totally calm. Okay. And so, and I was thinking, and and so I'm thinking, hey, uh, these guys are like by far what seem like super happy, wonderful people. They're my people. And so then <laughs> I'm going to evolve into being super calm like them. And what I found out is, is that, Basically, it's just a total facade because inside it's like you're you're dealing with uh, uh, this this anesthesiologist who was influential to me when I was young, uh, named Peter. Said, "What you have to do is uh, internalize all of the chaos in the room and then project calm." Okay. So then, like whether whether it's with the patient or whether it's the surgeon or the nurses, all of that is, and so we're we sort of orchestrated um, the environment. It would make everything okay, and so part of that is being a psychiatrist for them a little bit. Part of that is just guiding and being supportive and wise and thoughtful. And so it's and so next thing I know, I'm doing anesthesia, and it's like. This is super dangerous. <laughs> and, and, and so I was sort of wishing that I had done, I had gone deeper into the integrated medicine. I was like, God, I made a mistake, but I was getting amazing at procedural skills and injection. So I'm, and, but I realized I wanted to really have that deep dive into integrated medicine. So I started, I started like the month I got out of residency, I started studying. And so I studied acupuncture and I studied Chinese medicine and I studied Ayurveda and I studied yoga and Tai Chi and all of this stuff and ended up getting a doctorate in medical Qigong. And so I thought I was going to at some point exit anesthesia and be like kind of a integrative Andrew Weil type of character. <laughs> I like. So wait, really quick, just for anyone who's not familiar with that term, what does integrative medicine mean? Like what is, if I put a little air quotes around that, so, uh, that's a great that that's a great question because I think it means very different things to different people. But I think it's um, incorporating some of the best techniques of Western medicine and and then an uh, amalgamation of good ideas that come from all, many of those other places I discussed: Chinese medicine, Ayurveda. Um, there's a lot of wisdom in, in naturopathy uh, and homeopathy. And so uh, there are integrative strategies try to put together the best, the best of both of those, the best of East and West, I would say. A lot of, in a lot of ways, what that's saying or what you're doing when you take that approach is you're just being like the ultimate learner and you're just looking at any, anywhere, right? You'll go to anywhere for what will work, what will help patients. And you're willing to sort of figure out how to integrate it all together to make a difference. Yeah, that's really, really good. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, it's, so, it's so interesting because like one of the things that surprised me in a really pleasant way as I was getting ready for this conversation, you know, I, I didn't I didn't realize that you had done so much work in the world of like pro sports, you know, all the work you did with the Nationals, for example, maybe you can talk about that. But the reason I thought it was especially interesting is that, um, you know, 
I would not have assumed an anesthesiologist would have spent so much time thinking about movement, for example. And I just thought it was interesting how you've gone far afield and you've like turned, you've left the, 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 the boundaries of, the, of your chosen domain, so to speak, in order to find these things out. And I'm curious, like, how do you approach that? How do you approach that as a learner, like going outside your discipline to find the answers in spaces where you don't know the, you don't know what's going on? It's a self research, it's a self funded research project. That has basically been trying to solve my own problems. Okay. Say more about that. So then what happened is I was, um, and so then is as my early bid kind of 1.0 of kind of, uh, evolving away from anesthesia. Cause I felt immediately like, uh Oh, I'm just facilitating surgeries that I kind of don't always believe in. Yeah. And so, so then we were doing yoga and, and Tai Chi and all of these things. And, and once you start to do that, then we started setting kinetic chains and how force moves through the body. And, and then once you start to do that, then I started this deep dive into looking at musculoskeletal physiology because we were basically trying to, uh, fix problems. And if you could fix, like I had some back stuff and I had some knee stuff and I had, Shoulder stuff, neck stuff. Sure. So, so I had all of those <laughs> things from playing sport. This grab bag of pain. A grab bag of pain. And so then I was, and so I, you wouldn't believe how many things. So we went into, um, you know, I, I studied uh, Indian clubs. We were doing strength training. So we were doing all this stuff and, uh, and it, in an effort to kind of improve how force flows through the body. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then once you can have it start to flow more efficiently and functionally through the body, uh, those are the same goals that you would have, whether you're a Tai Chi expert or a pro athlete or a weekend warrior. We're just trying to get force and energy to flow efficiently through the body. So then um, I, I happened to go to a meeting where people were teaching hydrodissection which is this technique where you put fluid around nerves and do okay. injections uh, to fix pain. And so I showed up there and then I called my friend Barb and I was like, you're not going to believe it. I found out what I'm going to do for the rest of my life because, <laughs> I, and because I had been doing ultrasound guided injections all day, every day for like 10 years. Okay. And so then I came, I went to a meeting. I was like, Oh, I know more than everybody here about this. Like, this is what we're going to do. And then we're just going to wrap functional medicine around a, a, a physiological approach to the body. So then that's, that's basically what I've done. Is there a difference between functional medicine and integrative medicine? There's just massive overlap. And so f- f- functional medicine is a, is a term that is used for a thoughtful approach to um, talking to people, gathering kind of a, a real nice, uh, robust history, and then doing a whole bunch of testing. So, for example, like what we were talking about on the phone, mm. testing your vitamin D level, testing testing a whole bunch of things, and then putting all of that together and correlating it with the symptoms and then creating treatment algorithms to support people. And many of those treatment algorithms can be integrative, but then many of those are just straight, normal Western medicine approaches. 
Yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah. I think the way you explained it to me or that I've heard you explain it before was it's kind of like being a McKinsey consultant as opposed to like just a specialist, right? You're kind of taking this systems level view and integrating across various subsystems in the body to just solve the problem. Uh, you know, as opposed to saying, nope, I just deal with, you know, knees. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And that, that is how great organizations are doing things in the world right now. Um, taking a systems approach. Uh, that's the, the best when medicine's at its best, it takes, takes a systems approach. The systems type approach to solving problems in any domain, whether that's business or medicine or just life is very appealing, right? It, it's, it's sort of intuitively appealing, but a lot of people don't know how to do it. So I'm curious if you could tell, tell me a story or tell me about a time when you coached, let's say you had a doctor who was coming from more, a more traditional approach to medicine, more of a siloed type approach. How do you, co- how have you coached that type of person to learn to see and think sort of systemically the way you're describing? Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. That's basically, I spent like two hours talking to people yesterday trying to figure out how I could do that better. Part of that is giving people really good protocols because then, because everybody sort of, it's interesting, everybody wants a protocol, which is the opposite of systems thinking. Right. Because a protocol in this sense is like, just tell me what to do, right? Just tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do so I don't have to think about it. So I don't have to think about it. And so then people really want that. Doctors want that. Patients want that. And just tell me what to do and then I'm going to do it. And yet, uh, we're trying to constantly nuance and, and think broader and, and in bigger terms. And, and so, uh, and then, so, and so a lot of the, a lot of what I do is I just basically I'll do it for people. People will come and I'll, I'll talk them through, we'll, we'll do cases and then we'll go back into another room and talk about it. And I'll be like, well, what did you think about that? And it's a, and, and medicine and medicine is an art. And then when, and if you go back to when I first did this, it's like, it's a very collaborative kind of interesting experience when you're in systems, because it'd be like, we would sit down in a small group of five or six people and then work our way through this case of this 75 year old lady that comes in with pneumonia, let's say. And that would be different today than if it was back then. And, and so then you're, you're constantly evolving and sort of socializing between everybody who's working on it. And that's, that's interestingly how medicine in the best of times happens. Because, for example, in like in there's grand rounds or uh, a tumor board when there's really complex patients. And so then a group of people will sit and kind of process that together. And, uh, I think when I'm at my best, I'm talking to a bunch of people with different areas of domain knowledge and then putting that together in, 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 in a, the most logical way and, and, and thoughtful, thoughtful way. Yeah, it seems like one of your real strengths, just as I've listened to you on other other interviews you've done and, and watched some talks you've given, it seems like you have a real strength for... Uh, I'll say synthesizing, so like synthesizing large swaths of disparate material in into like distilling it down into like a cogent, coherent whole and putting handles on it so that people can actually get it, grab it and do something with it. Oh, thank you. 
That's like the only thing that I want to do in my life, actually. Is <laughs> well, you're doing a good job. So there you go. So, you know, I really, it's curious. I want to go back to a, a point in time. So you described to, uh, just a few minutes ago, you were saying something that like right after you finished your residency, right? And you're, you're kind of getting into the world of anesthesia and you have this like, oh, shit moment where you're like, uh oh, I, I'm in the wrong game. And I'm curious, like that that's such those moments are so scary, but they're also so transformative. And like those are real watershed moments in our life. And I'm curious if you could just talk to me a little bit about how you navigated that, right? We were talking right before we hit record about the idea of creating your life and the fact that it's sort of oh, this, yeah. this, this active choice. And I I'd love to hear about how you approach that because that's that type of moment happens to everybody and it's scary. Okay. So then I'll actually take you back a little bit before that. Okay. To the time when I was going to go into medicine. If you look at any kid right now that's a senior in college or they're pre-med, uh, what you want is you want to make a contribution, contribution to mankind and do something great. You would, and you'd like to do some research. You want to have a clinical experience where you take care of patients because taking care of patients is like this, the most gratifying part of it. And so you want to put, you want to, you want to basically construct all of that together. And that is the ultimate dream of being a doctor. Oh, and you, and then you want to teach. Mm-hmm. So fundamentally, and so then at, at academic centers, you see these guys that are like these, they teach a couple days a week. They've got a clinic one or two days a week, and then they're, they're in a lab doing research. And so then these are the great and profound teachers that are impacting mankind. And it's like the, the ultimate dream of being a physician. Uh-huh. So I wanted to do that with my whole heart and soul. And so okay. then I thought, I said to myself, rather than go down the academic road, I'm going to do a, the, the clinical private practice where, I, and you make more money there. And so that was part of the appeal. And I said, then what I'll do is I will, I'll have more flexibility to control and navigate what I do. And then I'm going to figure out how to do research and teach and, and then have the ultimate dream of being a doctor that does everything and then make a meaningful impact. I love it. Then fast forward after a couple of years and I'm working in the surgery center and I realized that I'm in a role and I'm trapped in the role and it doesn't seem like there's a way to get out. And every year that it, it, you go, it seems harder and harder to get out. And then you get dependent on a lifestyle. And so then I, I felt like six or seven years ago, the probability that I was going to make it out was like 10%. And I, and I was like, and I remember uh, this friend of mine uh, whose surgery center, I, his, this guy, Sharam, who I love, uh, uh, I was working at his surgery center. And, and he said, here's the thing, just do this thing that you're going to do and then keep coming to the, and you can do my cases and do, do half the cases at the surgery center and then get your new business going and then it'll be great. And then uh, once you get that going, I go, Sharam, I go, I'm either going to die or I'm going to do this. And there's nothing in between. And that was great. He looked at me just like you. And then he goes, okay. Okay. <laughs> there's, and, there's nothing else to say. <laughs> and so, and, but I was doing, I was doing the, 
integrative medicine and and uh, America wasn't really ready for integrative medicine at that time. What year was this? this is from essentially 1998 until like six years ago. Okay, so it's like 2014 ish. Yeah, and it was it was even like I ran into a bunch of anesthesiologists the other day at dinner that I used, but, but right before quarantine, and they go, "Cook, you were right." I go, "What?" They go, "We made we mercilessly made fun of you uh, for being gluten free, but then it turns out everybody's like <laughs> gluten." So, like, so, but so then, but but what happened is is once. I figured out that, and and I had always told myself the story because I heard this story about um, two people who were lawyers who wanted to change their career, and I I, I heard it I think on Tim Ferriss, and it was interesting because I started listening to Tim Ferriss years ago, and I was like, and he gave me the hope that I was going to get be able to get free, but there's a story. Awesome. The story was that there was this one lawyer, and so she she opened up a yoga studio, and then this other they both hated their job, and then there's this other lawyer who became this expert in the super narrow thing of import export legal stuff. So then what happened is he got the things that everybody wants, which is autonomy, money, and respect. Yeah, and then basically she moved into a commoditized market where she wasn't able to get the respect she wanted because she's just like an average yoga teacher. And so the whole thing ends up not paying off. Mm. And so for me, what happened is I started doing all of these nerve treatments and fixing peripheral nerve pain and back pain and stuff like that, that was super derivative of, of what I'd already been doing for 15 years, but it was just like a, 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 a modified approach. Mm-hmm. And so then that, that allowed me to sort of like be who I am within my medical practice. And um, it's like the greatest thing of all time. Like I, and, and even, even now, like I had an, and I, I said, I finally have started to make contact with anesthesiologists because mm-hmm. they're, I had one fly and, and I trained him for two days this week. And they're so easy for me to train because they already know like the uh, how to be sterile and how to do do injections. Yeah, they've already got all this stuff. Like, fine. <laughs> yeah. So then, it's, and I, I, I was awesome because next thing you know, he's following me around and picking stuff up and 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 doing things. And I was like, this this is going to be so easy. And then and then and so then what happens is I. I'm ecstatic because I realize he's going to be free. Like I'm literally like going into the matrix and unplugging him like Neo. <laughs> and, and, and then like, he's going to be free and he's going to go do whatever he's going to do. You know, so it's kind of cool. You said something really, really powerful, but you said it so casually that I have to go back to it, which is you said something like when you're doing this, you finally, you feel like you're finally getting to, to, you know, be who you are. And what's, I'm curious when my experience, there's always like, a moment or a kind of moment that is what gives rise to people saying something like that. And I'm curious when you think about that moment that has you like, where you just click in and you go like, yeah, this is, this is me. This is my moment. What's that moment for you? Okay. So the, uh, my friend, uh, Jesse told me this one and which is interesting. And she goes, when, 
when you start to, you, she goes, in life, what you're going to do is you're going to start to attract patients. And fundamentally, the patients that you attract all have the same problems that you have. But you've just sort of, you've either fixed your problems or you're very well on your way to fixing them. And so then you have some problem that's like 95% fixed. And so then it's like if you had that problem and it was only 10% fixed, I would be like, oh, I've totally got you because I figured that out. Mm-hmm. And, and, so, um, and so then for me, what happened is all of a sudden I, I spent from the time that I was 16 until now trying to fix a bunch of stuff like the back and the knees and the shoulder and all the stuff. And I remember like sitting with a journal and when I was 17 saying, this is going to be the year of the legs. I'm going to go do squats (laughs) and I'm going to be jacked and it's going to be amazing. (laughs) And then I hurt, I got hurt. And so then I was like, Oh God. And so then, (laughs) but then what happened is next thing you know, we started fixing all this stuff. And so then now I walk around in clinic and it's like, I see these things. That's like, Oh, I used to have that. Hmm. And so then, and I, it's like, it's like almost ecstatic for me because I realize, Oh, I know how to fix that. And so then I just love doing it. And then the, the, maybe the most interesting thing is, is that I think like a huge percentage of anesthesiologists kind of have are running about like 20% PTSD all the time mm. just because mm. it's so unbelievably stressful because like you meet some 75 year old grandmother and you're doing some surgery for her and you appropriately managed everything, got everything prepared. But then all of a sudden she starts having arrhythmia, which is like an irregular heartbeat, which those genre of things happen all the time, but if you meticulously manage it, then you can fix it right away. And so I had thousands and thousands of times where there was a problem and then I fixed it. And if I was sort of super, super focused and which I spent every second trying to do, then you never have any problem, but you're living with the fear of that problem yeah, you're always waiting for that shoe to drop. Yeah, and so, uh, th- so and so those moments of terror sort of drive you into being stuck a little bit in in a fight or flight state, and um, and so then a huge part of my early practice was then just healing all of that stuff, and it turns out everything that we do is like quite helpful for that. And when I was in medical school, I remember these guys. They were like, "Hey, don't go into like." Don't go. It's kind of like walking around the VA. They're like, oh, don't go take care of do anything in PTSD because they never get better. Yeah. That was this conversation that was like going on among the doctors. And so then if you're having that conversation going on, then when you start to get a little PTSD, then you're thinking, oh, but I I learned in medical school that they never get better. So I'm totally screwed. So that's the existential um, angst then of an anesthesiologist because you, you're you're and, and I ran into an anesthesiology friend of mine and he goes the problem is is that you get re-exposed to the same potential trigger every single morning 
every morning you go back to work and you meet someone and then you do anesthesia for them, then it's super dangerous. And then yet somehow you magically get through it, but they're, you're, you're afraid because you, you remember this one time last year or two years ago or whenever it was when something almost happened. And so you're continually, so, uh, so we, we do a lot in the PTSD wellness front, which is the joy of my life because I feel like, uh, that and musculoskeletal and infectious disease, I think are the three areas that I'm going to make some, a real impact, I think. I want to actually switch gears here and start to talk about that a little bit because I know you're kind of one of the one of those guys out on the forefront of this type of work, right? In terms of treating, you know, what you the way you described it to me was that your clinic you basically see two 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 kind of categories of of patients. You know, bucket one is somebody who's very much in the like human performance and optimization camp, where you know it's a total biohacker or maybe a high net worth individual or something like that, where they're really just trying to get everything possible out of what they've got to work with. But then there's this other camp of like, you know, cases that everybody else thinks are hopeless. Right. right. And that's really kind of what, what you're speaking to. And, and you've had really amazing success there working with a variety of therapies, including ketamine. I was talk to talk to me a little bit about that. Like, you know, in particular, the thing that I you had said to me before that I'd love to hear you talk about a little more is you mentioned to me how it's such a there's almost like this massive societal ROI or, or a huge yield on like being able to reset our most vulnerable people. And that's, I think, exactly what you're speaking to right now. Ketamine is an amazing way to help people, and it's a, it's you could you could do something profound to help the most disadvantaged people. Ketamine is a as an anesthesia drug that I've been uh, using as to help uh, because it's it's good for pain relief, and it's it's a great uh, it's a great component of an anesthetic. So I've been using it for patients. Um, for 20 years. But it turns out uh, it can be very helpful for people with drug-resistant depression and PTSD. And it's a mild psychedelic, but then it has this term I've been using. It's, it's called psycholytic. Hmm. And so if there's an emotional trigger and someone's on ketamine, that emotional trigger can go from like a 8 or a 10 to a 0. And because you remember everything that happens in that experience, you're able to sort of process the fact that this thing that I was like really wired up about all of a sudden turns into total calm. And so then I mean, and, and we do it with therapy where we'll be talking to people and they're they're super frustrated about something. And then we'll and then next thing you know, they're doing ketamine. And so then we say, hey, what do you think about this what do you think how well, how would you and now normally you, you that person would be would be like well that's not true for me just like just, just you can imagine a million people you've met just like a snap response including including probably ourselves right oh, for sure we all got them and yet in that state people go oh oh that's a good idea and so now the next thing you know you're you're talking so like my my total favorite on this and it's kind of interesting because my dad's a psychologist okay. and um and that's partly how i ended up in this whole thing because 
I went that, in. That to, does make sense. I went into <laughs> anesthesia to, kind of to avoid psychiatry because I was <laughs> there was a joke in our family that psychiatry didn't work, and and yet I see a lot of uh, psychologists who come to see me who are in their sixties and seventies who were somewhat overwhelmed by the the stress of the experience of their career. And then what we'll do is, and, and I did this with my, with my dad actually also, which was like the greatest thing of all time wow. for, for our relationship. And so then what happens is um, we, we um, process through stuff and it's like all of a sudden you can talk about a bunch of things that before you didn't think you could talk about. And if you can just sometimes if you can just have a therapeutic conversation where you can kind of get that stuff off your chest and then you you can see that there's a trajectory for getting better. And that, I think, is the thing that happens with ketamine. And so then all of a sudden people were like, I I, I think I'm actually going to be okay. So it's sort of like like a new it actually like they can see hope where there was none before. Right. Now the lack of hope was was uh partly related to the fact that the emotional triggers were so profound that it didn't allow them to see any anything else. But then as the triggers go away, then you're kind of just like oh, oh, that's an interesting idea. So this this idea of triggers is really fascinating, right? Because it's something we all have, and everyone who has a, a, even an ounce of self awareness has experienced and noticed themselves like wildly lose their shit over something that was like right. you know they've, they've blown something way out of proportion. We've all done that. Um, but I'm super curious, like, could you could you sort of in layman's terms explain a little bit about like what is this link between our neurophysiology and our psychology? Like, what is a trigger in our brain, and like what is actually happening in the brain when you have when you work someone through this ketamine treatment that allows what you're describing this reframing to actually occur? Okay, that's a really that's a that's a great question, and I hope that I'm going to do justice to it. Um, we have our consciousness and our framework of how we create our identity and our structure of, of our preferences and, and who we are. Okay. Now then that's intimately mapped into the limbic system. Mm. And so then the limbic system is emotions. And now interestingly in the limbic system, I'm, I've had this new way that I've been thinking about this, which is this, that there's emotions that are in rest and relax motion, emotions, and then there are fight or flight emotions. Okay. So the fight or flight emotions are like fear and anger and worry and shame. Mm. And so then those are good emotions and super useful because if the house was on fire, I might need to use anger to motivate somebody to do something or I might have to. So, so, and we've been running through, through these emotions forever. Okay. Now then the rest and relax emotions are love, acceptance, gratitude, all the, all the, the touchy feely good ones that we want to be running. All the warm fuzzies. The warm fuzzies. Now then the way that our, our brain works is that our prefrontal cortex and all of our senses are mapping into this part of the brain called the amygdala, which is the fight or flight control center. 
Mm-hmm. And um, when, if everything's cool, like right now, so I was just like, great. And so then the whole brain's on, the brain wires into the hippocampus back here, which is like the memory part of the brain. And it's, it's contextualizing emotion, but it's contextualizing co- cognitively what's happening. And so we have this kind of robust, cool thing happening. But then if something comes up that insinuates that we're not safe and that we might need to change our program to fight or flight to get up and get out of here, then that can turn the fight or flight part on. And so we're constantly modulating back and forth. Like heart rate variability is kind of a a measure of how quickly you can go back and forth. And so what should happen is that something crazy scary could happen. And then, but we would realize that was, that's gone now. And it was, it's funny or whatever. And then we would just immediately switch back into the state. Yeah. And that's what happens with little kids. Hmm. It's like our default setting. That's our default setting. Our default setting is, is that, you you know, you, you think about a little kid that you, that something crazy happens to them. And then like 10 minutes later, you'd be like, Hey, can go take a nap? And then they'll go lie down and take a nap. But if a real stressful thing happened to you, you're not going to be able to go take a nap 10 minutes later. Yeah. Now, what happens is there are topics that are that are related to our consciousness and our construct, our identity of who we are. And if that gets triggered, then what it does is it triggers a fight or flight response. And then that turns on the fight or flight emotions which is like this anger, fear, shame. And so then all of a sudden that can totally derail you because then all of a sudden those emotions take over and become overwhelming. And they, they start to take over the consciousness because what they're doing is they're taking, a, they're this incredible, powerful flavoring mm. to an idea. And so there's an idea that might be a good idea but then if there's a whole bunch of shame and worry and anger around that, it just like seems out of control. Mm-hmm. And, but, but then if the warm and fuzzy emotions are running around that idea, it might be like the greatest idea of all time. Now, part of our construct of our ego and stuff is what you, you hear this term called the default mode network. What happens is re- learning to rewire the brain so that you're practicing being more in control. And so those triggers are often, if that's true, then that says something about me that I don't like. Mm -hmm. And and that is worrisome because if that's true, that means I'm not safe. Yep. And what happens is that happens so quickly that it leads to like a little bit of a rage response of like, because you don't want that to be true. And so then you'll almost fight against, fight, which paradoxically makes it true. <laughs> and so then, so then what you have to do is sort of, as you start to defrag these and then you start to realize that there's like an entire universe inside here. And so then all of a sudden, then it's like, I say, Oh, okay, guess what? My identity is I'm kind of interested in my identity, but it's like evolving so quickly that like, my identity at the end of this COVID thing is going to be different than it was now. And so therefore what you, if you said something that was like triggering that, that might be triggering to my identity now, but it may not be triggering to my future identity. Mm -hmm. 
then this begin, becomes the sort of logic game. And so then I go, oh, okay, well, so that's triggering to me now, but it's not triggering to the me in the future. Okay. And so then, and so then if I'm able to work my way through a timeline and I realize, oh, so then I don't need to be triggered by it now. Uh, okay. Yeah. Because I'm not super wired into like whatever my identity is. Like, let's say you said, and so then what that allows you to do is to, to navigate through things and not be tr- too triggered if people disagree. Because you're not threatened by the, the, by the fact that uh, you're not going to feel safe. That's the fundamental thing. Yeah. So let me, let me, let me just pause you for a second, make sure I'm with you. I'm going to try and recap that in in layman's terms. So what I think you're saying, and please correct me where I'm getting this wrong is it, there's like kind of a a multi-part system going on here, right? So there's like the mental, I think you called it like an idea or a mental formation, right? There's a concept in your mind. And then that concept is sort of like has wired in associations that trigger emotions to go along with it, right? So they can be the idea of shame or an event that there's a, there's an event and then that's wired to the emotions of shame, for example. And that is sort of like kicking in. So event happens. That's the trigger. It kicks off this entire cascading effect of emotions that takes over the nervous system. Off you go into fight or flight. And next thing you know, you don't know what you don't even know what's going on. And so it seems like what's happening under, under the treatments that you all are creating is that you're using assistive, uh, interventions like ketamine, for example, which has a psychological and physiological effect of kind of like making you feel, first of all, really safe. And so you, you feel safe. And then I think you, you also, I think in the research, I, I found that you're also doing things like stellate ganglion blocks to like turn yeah. off the fight or flight nervous right. system. Right. And so it seems like you're almost like using this intervention to go and like snip the wire that's linking this mental formation to an automatic response. So you can then kind of talk through and introduce a new linkage. Is that what's going on? Yeah. Yeah, that is, that is exactly what's going on. But then what I'm, my attitude is once you figure out how to do this, then you don't need to do any of those other things. And so then like my greatest, the people that are like most influential to me are like artists and comedians and stuff like that. And so then like what would happen is if Dave Chappelle or Jerry Seinfeld, like I've been watching a lot of them lately, Uh if they saw something, they would just call that out. They'd be like, well, that's crazy. And in a funny way, call out the behavior rather than getting triggered by it. Mm. Because as soon as you comment on it, that that takes all of the power away from it. Because mm-hmm. you've externalized it, you've given language to it. It's not you anymore. Yeah. The, and so then this be, this is like a practice. And ketamine is just like some training wheels to kind of get somebody going or a cellular ganglion block is like a hard reboot of like the central nervous system. But then once you kind of get going, then the, the issue is, is that there's going to be a bunch of conversations like this that are like non-triggering or it's like totally non-triggering for me anyways. And so then that, but then there's a bunch of other conversations that are slightly harder and then some that are very difficult Hmm. in in life. Mm Mm-hmm. And so then what happens is, is learning to navigate the difficult ones where you can call out like a comedian does. Oh, they're, oh, that he's, tr- that is starting to make me feel this way. And then if you can diagnose that happening real time, and then you can almost like see yourself going into fight or flight 
this is what I just started being able to do only like in the last six months and then go, Oh, okay. That I'm, I was triggered by that, but there's like totally no reason for me to be triggered by that. Like I'll generally Mm -hmm. almost always realize. And, and that trigger is generally based on an idea that I picked up hook, line and sinker from 10 years ago. Mm Mm-hmm. Or as an idea that my parents had, and so I just bought that hook, line, and sinker. Yep, been carrying this thing around my whole life and didn't even realize it. That, and then that's how why I go to this timeline because then I go, okay, I'm triggered by this now, but th- that's probably not even me. That's just something that I picked up, and so I'm probably going to let that go. Which means, like almost anything that I'm triggered by now, I'm guessing that I'm not going to be triggered by it in five years. Mm. Yeah. Now I'll be maybe I'll be triggered by other things, right? But then what happens is is that it leads to this evolution of consciousness where next thing you know, you're navigating like what I can I can tell you is I've been super enjoying my life like a hundred times more than I've ever enjoyed it before, kind of doing this principle. Now, this is so fascinating to me. He's like it's like a shift in in a mental formation under the right conditions can create these like radically cascading effects neurologically, physiologically, and psychologically. That, I mean, that's, that's just incredible. Like that's like all bets are off kind of territory. So this is great. This is so great. So there's a percentage of people who will show up and they'll be like, you know what? I listen to everything and I know it to be true, but it's just not true yet. But I know that I'm going to do everything and then I'm going to be okay. And then sure enough, they will be. Yeah. And then there's another group of people that are in the, even in the end stage chronic pain, and then I'll start to see them. And then they will also follow kind of the similar trajectory because it's, it's getting your head wrapped around the idea that it's like, uh, there's a way to live that's basically super easy and pleasant and wonderful. And then, and we were designed to be able to have the sirens start to go off if the house is on fire. But then we should be just basically having a great time the rest of the time, telling stories and kicking it and enjoying ourselves. Yeah. Enjoying ourselves. Yeah. That's so fascinating. So one, one thing I'm curious about is like, cause what you were just describing there in a lot of ways, you could, you could kind of, um, in the world of psychedelics, that's often referred to as like set and setting, right? Like right. an intention, right? The way people approach something and their mental sort of where they're at mentally, their intentions for doing it. And then literally like where they do it and does that make them feel safe and all that? It, it seems to have this huge effect, right? Like you were just describing right. someone comes to you and they're already like bought in it's going to go better than someone who's like, I guess we'll try it. Um, but do you have, is there a sense you fit, you've picked up like why that actually makes such a difference? Like what is going on that, that, that concept, the presence of that concept makes such a difference. Okay. So we're hanging out right now. Everything's mapping in. And so if the set and setting is amazing, you're you're turning the volume way up on warm and fuzzies. Okay. Okay. Now then, the concept of and then I could expl- I could go into all, any substance you want. I could go. I could talk to you through the physiology of it. But in broad terms, if you turn up the volume on warm and fuzzies, then that it, it, consciousness sort of sits on top of that. And so then that 
in what's going on in the limbic system then starts to massively influence consciousness. Because if you're feeling warm and fuzzies, then you're going to be having intellectual thoughts that have a warm and fuzzy vibe to them. In parallel to that, the opposite is, is that if you're in, if you're set in settings chaos, then that's driving uh, the opposite consciousness. Right. Like the, the idea that the emotions, the, the emotions drive the thoughts just as much as the thoughts drive the emotions. Yes. Yeah. And so now then the name of the game is then trying to figure out how to hack warm and fuzzies and then connecting that to an idea of consciousness and an identity. And um, so, for, so for example, like some of the psychedelics will, will sort of defrag the default mode network a little bit. And so it'll, it'll soften uh, our, our, our view of identity of ourselves and then make us way more open to connection to other people. So really quick, I just wanted to clarify two things. So default mode network for for people who aren't uh, familiar and please correct me where I get this wrong is kind of like when you're doing nothing, that's what's active in your brain, right? When you're just like taking a walk, doing whatever, that's the part of the brain that is is sort of generally um, on and, and, and dominant. Is is that correct? Yeah, I think that's okay. And and it's also, and it, it really relates to ego and our sense of, and, uh, of identity to some extent. So well. sort, of self, sort of self-referential. It's like the seat of the, of the identity and the ego. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And so when, when you talk about defragging it, what does defragging kind of mean in this context? So, so then, so then like there's this question, like, who are you? Right. And so then that's like this something that you can begin to explore. And so then as you start to explore and contextualize who you are, then all of a sudden you realize, oh, okay, maybe that's who I was, but now that it's, it becomes this evolving thing. And mm-hmm. as, and, and so I think meditation, mindfulness, yoga, breathing, uh, functional medicine, integrative medicine, uh, regenerative medicine, every, every technique that we have allows you to start to journey into uh, continually recreating who you are and then how that relates to the entire nervous system and then putting that together as, and then just being, being who you are. And most people are, I think, are somewhat trapped in an identity that was created in the past, but they're living it out. So like that was why I, felt, I think I was trapped by a decision that I made to go into anesthesia. And so then I was just like doing my entire identity was doing something. It's, it's interesting. Like what happened is I was like triggered by things about like insurance and stuff like that. Mm. And so I remember, and, but, but then what happened is then I left that behind. I don't even like, I'm not, it's, I'm completely not triggered by it, but it's like, because it's not even on my radar screen of something that's uh, relatable to me. And so then that's an example of as soon as you start to evolve into the, the idea that you're evolving, then that's amazing because then you get to, now you can just take yourself wherever you want to go. That's so fascinating because it's like so I've I've gotten I'm very interested in meditation and mindfulness and I, I started practicing like like 
13 years ago or something like that. And it's been an incredibly fascinating journey for me. And, and just listening to you now, I'm starting to understand why it works. Even the idea you just described is the idea that the self, the idea of the self is just that. It's an idea, yeah. right? And so it's shiftable in the same way any other idea is shiftable, which is just, I mean, like, it's so, that's so simple. It's profound. I think it's amazing. Like, you know, in your story, I hear you as someone who you were trapped in the concept of I'm an anesthesiologist, which is very, which is very different than I'm someone who does anesthesiology. Right. Right. Like your identity was anesthesiologist as opposed to I, how, how do you conceive of that now, by the way? I'm curious. Like, if, how, what, is, what do you conceive of yourself as now, identity-wise, since you shifted from being a, you know, boxed in by the, the label anesthesiologist? I'll tell people, like, I'm an anesthesiologist. Like, I'll say sure. that. Like, if what kind of doctor are you? I'll say I'm an anesthesiologist. Um, and yet, like, I think of myself as, uh, like a, as a physician. And I'm thinking of myself as just trying to put together trying to understand the human body basically and soul mm. and and so then and 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 then just like and so the the and so the way they and so you're trying to understand the human body you're trying to understand consciousness so that's like this goal and then just and you hear about it what do what do you call that the practice of medicine. Mm. So it's just a practice because like whatever I did as great as it was is let's just say probably not going to work for you because it, it's it, you're you're special and unique and I've got to figure it out all over again because it's the practice of medicine because I'm just going to relate to you and we're going to figure it out and then that's going to be magical and so it's the practice. Now the practice of mindfulness and meditation is also kind of amazing because what that does is that pulls you a little bit out of the ego construct and kind of gets you calmer. And so then living your life is almost like a practice. Like part of what I'm trying to do is just kind of get people to the real understand the, the reality that they're going to be fine. Everything's going to be okay. And then they can start to do this. And I always say, if I was good enough at what I'm trying to do, then I wouldn't need to do ketamine or silly ganglion blocks or anything like that. And I'm pretty sure that what's going to happen is, is there's going to be like 10 people who listen to this podcast who kind of get it. And then they start to basically self re rewire the architecture of their central nervous system. And, and then next thing you know, once you start to just run this program, it's just like an amazing program and you're going to be fine. It would be awesome if everybody had access to you or someone like you. Unfortunately, not everyone does right now. And we'll come back to the sort of societal ROI bit here in a second. But for, for someone who doesn't, what could they do starting today to run this program? I think, what you, what, I think the, the thing is, is you've got to be easy on yourself because... You've been, whatever story that you bought or picked up is a story that was like from you picked up when you're five from your, your parents said something you, you bought it hook, line and sinker. And so then, so then you just got to be easy on yourself. So if you get super triggered today, then, uh, then just give yourself a mulligan and realize it's going to be okay. Cause I'm going to get over it. And then as you start to get triggered, um, 
what I try to do is I try to be Jerry Seinfeld all the time in my mind. So I'm trying if I can, because if I can call out the the absurdity or the insanity of something, then that's then I'm definitely not going to be triggered. Never, everyone else is going to laugh. So I try comedy. I think is like one of the most effective strategies. And then suspending disbelief. What I've noticed, something triggering is said, and then all of a sudden the alarm bells start going off. Now, if this was a practice, then the idea is is that. When you start to see that coming towards you in slow motion, you're like, oh, okay, so this is happening, and then I'm having these feelings. So then I'm just going to kind of breathe with that a little bit, and I'm going to suspend disbelief. I'm not going to, like, go into that, because, and I'm just going to, like, okay, um, I've got to wait. And, and so then a lot of times I'll sit. I'll just, like, sit for, like, even a minute. I'll just be like, okay. And then, and then just use, and then what will happen is often just that amount of time is enough for you to realize, oh, that was stupid that I was reacting that way. <laughs> it's almost always like, it's not, if you, if it, even with me, I would say if I went back and looked at the game tape of every 10 times that I was triggered, I would kind of blame myself like 90% of the time. And then mm-hmm. as a result, then you feel bad about yourself. And so it's like this thing but that loop so then so then you're basically just defragging those loops Mm. it reminds me of a way i explained the benefit of meditation to a friend who was like curious but he he's like yeah it sounds cool but like i don't get practically like why to do it right because it takes time and consistency and blah 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 and the only way that i was i was able to land it for him was i was like imagine you're standing on you're standing on a platform at a train station and you're there and all of a sudden you know you feel that like rush of wind that's kind of like shaking your you know blowing through your hair and like hitting your face and you look over and you like can see this train coming right you're standing on the platform and you just see the train pulling in you see it coming and you know like you have some sense of where that train is going to go right because you know what platform you're on and it's going to this city and whatever and he's like and I was like, it's kind of like that, but in your normal life, like you see this thought coming down the, the tracks mm-hmm. and you kind of have that moment of choice because now that you're aware of it, you have a choice about like, do I get on the train or do I not? Oh, good. And you can stand there and let the train, like you can stand there, watch the doors open on the train, like you're in the subway and then let them close and watch the train pull out. And you just didn't get on board and you still felt all of the rush of the train coming in and you feel the rush of the train coming out, but you didn't get on board. Oh my God, that is so good. Yeah. Yeah. That's like the only, and, and like speaking for myself, that has saved, like that alone has saved me so many times. Like even last night, there was a moment where I got really triggered. Oh, really? And I was like, oh shit. Oh, yeah, I got super triggered about some dumb shit. And I was like, I could see it happening. And I was like, okay. All right. And I like excused myself for a minute, just went to the bathroom. And I just like sat there and breathed for a minute because, and I, it was one of those things where you're like, Oh yeah, there's that train. That's that thing happening again. Right. Okay. But as you said, like it go, it, 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 if you wait, if you just keep breathing and wait, it like the train will leave. And thank God you're not on board because <laughs> I would have ruined the dinner. That would have ruined the dinner. Right. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? And so what was it? Your limbic system, you could feel that you were willing to kind of let it go. How did what was going on in your mind as 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 you were letting that train come in and go out of the station? What what were you telling yourself? 
Uh, well, the first thing was, I think, because I've I've made the mistake of getting on that train before. Uh-huh. And uh, so I, I, I now know that train and I know where that train goes. Yeah. And so I think maybe, maybe, you have, maybe we have to screw it up first, at least once, to know where that train goes. And then now I recognize that train coming in and it has a certain sort of like tone to it. It has a, like a feel, like a feeling tone. And I'm like... Oh, oh, there's a thing, and I feel the pull of it emotionally. I feel it pulling me almost like a like a gravity well, right? Um, and I know I, I can I have an association now where like I know that feeling where it goes, and so um, that's what it's like is I can feel it, and I and then it's literally just that choice of like I'm like okay, you know what's happening, you know what's happening. Okay, so then we'll go we'll we'll go into this then. What can you, you want to say? Since you, what category of trigger was this? Was it about who you are, or is it about what what genre of trigger? Personal personal worth and value. So it was around like shame. Oh, I'll just one in the book. <laughs> I I like I. That's the oldest one. I had so much. Like it's interesting. I had a lot of shame. I, and I don't know why. I don't know. It was like almost cultural or something like that. And we we have this joke that like whenever if anybody comes if that topic comes up, I'll I'll be like, hey, um, I, we have a special like in the clinic today, and uh, I actually have been collecting a bunch of shame, and we put it in garbage bags in the back, and we're giving it away for ten dollars. So if you want, <laughs> like, and joking about it, you know, so, 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 because. Uh, it's because th- that, so, so then this is, I haven't really talked about this, but this is what I think is going on is that shame part of the limbic system is hardwired into the fight or flight part of the nervous system because it's one of the fight or flight emotions. Mm. And so then what it can do is it can take you in the middle of a wonderful dinner party into a moment that uh, is 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 crazy, right? Like you can't imagine, <laughs> like you can't imagine a scenario where blowing the dinner party up is a good idea, right? And and yet you could totally do it. That's why this is a practice, just like the practice of meditation. Because and interestingly, apparently Jerry, I have, I don't personally know Jerry Seinfeld, but apparently like he's real big on meditation. And like, as you start to, and, and what I think my biggest influence of my life now is like seeing the wise people who come to see me, I learn more from them than they learn from me. And so they'll tell me stuff. And the, um, this guy, Dave, uh, from Hawaii, just so he knows who I'm talking about, he goes, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing again and again, thinking there's going to be a different outcome. And that's kind of like the, um, that train's coming in, right? The train's coming into the station. And you're thinking, if I blow this up, it's going to be different from the last 10 times, right? <laughs> but then he goes, the definition of wisdom is, and I loved this. I just totally love this. He goes, is if there is a new data point that you find is true. And then that means other things that are in your ecosystem are therefore false. You may have to let go of those belief systems. 
Now then, that as a sort of a mental or a, a psychological construct is amazing because then next thing you know, you can very quickly start to defrag and let go of belief systems that you used to have that you held totally firmly. Like I had all of these belief systems when I was doing working in ICUs in the hospitals that I have, I have totally different belief systems now, but I own, I had, it took me 10,000 times of watching that train come into the station and go, okay, I've got a, that belief system is not working. So then how do I, how do I, where is my new belief system? What is the, what, what is truth? And then basically trying to constantly update that in, in search of, of the next direction. I love that. So I, I actually want to come back now. So we, we've covered so much interesting ground here around the mind and what's happening in these types of interventions, whether that's meditation or ketamine or anything like this. I'd love to actually, I want to circle back to something we touched on earlier. Um, you know, we talked about there's this ROI to uh, like helping the people who are most vulnerable, right? And I know this that it, certainly um, it's something you've been doing lately with your staff, right? You, you told you, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about how you're using the knowledge and the practices that you've developed to actually um, make the people, you know, support the people in your organization and in turn your patients. And that sort of seems like an example of the ROI you were talking about on a on a larger scale. Oh yeah, so it's interesting. So we. Um... You're so interesting with what's going on with the whole COVID thing because everybody, and so to go back to what we're talking about, fight or flight and fear and all of that stuff, all of that, all of those emotions, all of that stuff is like the volumes turned up to 10. So it's almost like it's so, so interesting. And so then what I decided to do is we've been doing IVs on this, anybody in the staff that wants them pretty much every day. So we've been doing IVs and we've been doing um, and then we've been doing some of the PTSD work that we do. And it's been and the feedback that I got and I wasn't really looking for I was just kind of like, well, what happened? And the feedback that I got it was always in the genre of, oh, we're going to be OK. It's like we hmm. we're going to be OK as an organization. We are going to be OK as we go back and start treating patients and, and helping them. And um, and so I, ju- I did it as a test. And it was it, like it was amazing to see the see it because as soon as they realize they're going to be OK, when a patient comes in, the patient's going to realize they're going to be OK because the staff's OK. And it's interesting because. I'm trying to get some people to try to help. We're, we're writing a clinical trial. We've written a couple and I'd like to go to a, a real underserved area and, and start to treat people and, and do it as a scientific approach and, and help the, the most disenfranchised because this, uh, this moment is, is so overwhelming from a PTSD front, from a medical front, from an economic front. And I feel like it makes as much, it would make as much sense in Compton if I could figure out how to reach, reach it there as where I am. And it's just going to have to be different price points. But what I'm, I'm hoping to do is that as, as we begin to realize that, uh, there's more hope as we begin to realize that like there's a chance that we're going to be okay. Uh, 
I, I want everybody in, in society to realize that. And it doesn't. And, and, and once you, once and it's interesting, like the hundred monkeys kind of idea once. What's that? I don't, I don't know that idea. Oh, so the, their idea is this like uh, if it takes like it takes like 10 hours to teach a monkey how to do something. OK, so then then uh, you bring another monkey in and they're living together and it takes 10 hours to teach them something. And so then eventually there's like 99 monkeys. By the time you get the 99th monkey or the 100th monkey there, he walks in, looks around, sees all the other monkeys doing stuff, and he learns it like in like 10 in one minute. Ah, okay. He just, just does what they're all doing. He just does what they're doing. He picks it up and, and then he's fine. And so then what my idea is, is that we're like, we're monkey like five and six. But then once people begin to realize kind of like a lot of the stuff that I'm talking about, then all of a sudden, because they had, because of the, the existential angst and the idea, they thought that they weren't going to be okay, they weren't going to make it, was so overwhelming, they kind of gave up. But when they look around and they realize, oh, oh, there's like a relatively simple construct that you can just start to, to apply, what I think is going to happen is then maybe 70% of people could do it and be totally fine and they wouldn't need any of these other things because they would just realize that there's a way to kind of manage the mental, emotional, physical, spiritual state in just kind of a functional, healthy way and then reset everything. No, I love this because it's it, it sort of, I think the way you, you described it to me once before was, you know, we there's like this idea, this, I think you called it like the existential pain that we all carry, right? There, there's this fear that we all have that, you know, there's, there's this hunch that it's all going to fall apart, right? There's this sort of latent, low-grade, persistent anxiety of the next shoe's about to drop. Yes. And at some point, if we're able to realize like, oh, and even if that's true, I'm, I'm okay, it's all going to be okay, that suddenly there's this like, uh, there's like this release. And the idea that you can create that uh, for the, some of the most vulnerable people in, in any system, whether that's a company, a society, whatever, um, it really just adds, I think, I think the word I heard you use before that I really liked was like coherence. Right, it increases the overall coherence for the entirety of that system right. when you can level up the the experience of the most disenfranchised, the most at risk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was it was amazing to see how helpful it was to start to do IVs and stuff like that and help people and within our practice, which is super small. You know, I mean, like twenty people. And, but but you know, it's 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 tricky because. There's a, a very interesting conversation now about um, what's evidence-based and what's not evidence-based in medicine. And so there's a, there, there are, there are people are listening and kind of going after people who are, appear to be trying to profit or trying to sell something that is, is not, um, doesn't have evidence. And so, and yet, most of the approaches that I'm talking about are not uh, um, FDA approved, or and, and they're they're early. And so, sure. and so, it's, it's very interesting, kind of. And the volume on that, the volume on that controversy got turned up to ten with with COVID. You know, so which is why I'm uh, anything that I do in that uh, space is going to be part of a IRB approved. It stands for Institutional Review Board, where people yeah. are uh, given a, a consent 
form that uh, has been approved by like an ethics committee and stuff like that. But, yep. um, but it's, it's, it's going to be an interesting because for example, Google doesn't Google and the search engine algorithms are not allowing uh, people to market uh, experimental uh, so there's going to be a very interesting sort of evolution of uh, voices in medicine. And uh, and so then, like, like I said, I, I came from the heart of the medical industrial complex. So I came from a, a world that was very, I would say, a similar mindset to somebody like Fauci. You know what I mean? Or, yep. Or, yep. And, 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 and so then having kind of conversations and, and, and then tracking that through, through this moment in time and then through like new iterations of like who we are, I, I, I super look forward to because it's just that same, that same conversation that we were talking about is like kind of further, furthering, uh, gathering more data and, and getting better. And and then then continually re-asking yourself the same questions. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's so interesting. Like your your work, you know, with you, you do a lot of clinical work with individuals, right? Dealing with sometimes it's the optimization side of things, but other times, as we've talked about, it's dealing with debilitating levels of anxiety or PTSD, and and using this whole suite of tools that you're you've already got and that you're continuing to discover to reset these systems and sort of restore people to their natural wellness um, is amazing. And I'm really curious, as someone, you know, I think a lot about and and talk a lot about on this show about, um, you know, what is the future of business? How do we use products and services to not only enliven people, but also to enliven organizations in the spaces that we all inhabit together? And I'm curious if you're seeing anything like this make its way into the organizational level, like almost biohacking or neurohacking at the organizational level with some of these cutting edge uh, groups. Is that is there something like that going on? Or what are you seeing there? That's amazing. First of all, if there's an organization that wants to do that, I would love to do that for your organization. And so then what happen, What you have to do is you have to do a real good job of having uh, some things that are protocol oriented, kind of like what we were talking about. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then also creating the space for systems thinking and collaboration. And, and so then this is interesting. I'd, I have been super interested in like, wellness like workplace wellness yeah and yet it's i've always thought of it as kind of a con huh because it was mainly like in 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 medicine uh if you had to go see the wellness committee there was a problem (laughs) and and it was just like an excuse to get rid of people you know what i mean and and so finding a constructive way to support people is is going to be crucial, and I think that you, there are a bunch of elements of of what I'm talking about that could be wrapped into like a, a corporate kind of identity that would be that would help people be more functional and less in fear and less and less in kind of fight or flight. The, because the less than I'm in fight or flight, I am the way more effective I'm going to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're more creative. You're going to be more connected. You're going to communicate better. And and yet there has been a there's a, a little bit of a fear of if I um, spend a whole bunch of time 
doing that, I'm not going to be efficient at getting work done. And, and so then yeah. like that, it's like a double-edged sword. But what I think is going to happen is, is there are going to be organizations and groups that are going to start to deploy these. And then what's going to happen is, and, I, and I'm convinced about this. So my hypothesis is that over time, I'm going to be cheaper and I will compete against insurance companies at like anything. Uh, I'm just going to start with like easy things. So like, for example, the, the one that I would, uh, one of the, the first one I would do would be like, okay, I'll compete against insurance companies for total knee replacement. Cause I think what I would do would be cheaper than total knee replacement. And so then you just start to do some data and analyze that. And so then what will happen is as organizations begin to deploy this genre of technology, they will quickly find out what the ROI is on, on each of 60 different categories. And so then mm-hmm. all of a sudden, you, have, you may see big organizations find out, oh, okay, well, this actually is, is, is totally going to pay off because uh, it, and, 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 and each, that's like 200, let's, there's a whole bunch of data points that each person could have. And so it's going to take time to deploy different technology to improve whatever the problems are. Um, and then to track those outcomes and see what happens with efficiency. But to some extent, anytime an organization seems to care, it's like remember Google, like in the early days, it was like, don't be evil. If you have a feeling that your organization super cares about you, then you're probably going to do an amazing job of working. Yeah, you're going to work that much harder. It's interesting. Like, I wonder. I wonder. Part of my brain goes like, "Huh." I can. I can imagine a future like where this stuff is available within the sort of the spectrum of corporate wellness. Mm-hmm. In the same way that like mindfulness has moved into almost mainstream corporate wellness, mm-hmm. right? That I think I could totally see this sort of biohacking stuff getting towards that towards that same level where you can imagine, you know. The Googles of the world, the Apples of the world, having these things available for people um, because they, you know, I think over time we'll see. I mean, we don't know. We don't have the the full on studies yet, which is why hopefully we get some uh, and we can create some studies. But I think we'll see the data. Um, I basically share your hypothesis that, that the data will prove out that like this is so worth it. Right, right. And so then we just have to find the right package of things that are relatively inexpensive. Uh, that are relatively high reward, and 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 then deploying those in a, in a in an organization, and then when people start to get better, that that up levels the whole organization and the consciousness of everybody is like, oh, we're, we're like it's almost the same thing I was talking about as a for an individual, but everybody in the organization starts to realize, oh, we're going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And so then, and so then we just have to figure out what the protocols are and what the, what the price points are to begin to deploy that in for large groups of people. And then you begin to say, Oh, okay. Well, we could deploy as soon as you can have that genre of thinking, then we could do that at Apple, but we could also do that in the inner city. Yeah. I love that. As we move forward into this future, there's going to be so many of these things, new new treatments available, right? And there's going to be new studies coming out. And um, 
we're, this is a little bit of the Wild West for people, which is exciting on the one hand. It can also be overwhelming for people. It can be confusing, scary, all of these things. Um, and whether we're talking about some of the, the treatments that we're talking about in this conversation, like the ketamine stuff, or anything else that's going to come out, like all the COVID treatments that are under development, et cetera, et cetera. So how should listeners actually evaluate studies or medical claims that they come across? Because most people are not trained scientists and we're kind of out in the Wild West here. So how would, how would you recommend that a listener evaluate a medical claim that they see uh, in terms of like thinking about the quality of the studies or otherwise tr- basically trying to like figure out what's the good stuff and what's quackery? Right. So that's a phenomenal that's a phenomenally good question. I think it's experiences like this, people can kind of hear at least where I'm coming from, the genre of, of where I'm coming from. And I didn't dig too deep scientifically into much today. But then as you, so you're going to be able to take that. Um, normally, there's this long peer review process for trials. And what's happening is people are publishing um, work and then we're going back and looking at it and going, hey, that wasn't as good as we thought it was. So, for example, like with COVID, there was a drug that came out, a drug combination of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin, uh, mm-hmm. which are two drugs. And the concept was if you looked at the early papers, it seems like this drug's a, a home run and it's going to solve everything. And uh, it, it wasn't that by any stretch of the imagination, I think. And so there was problems with that study. And so then uh, on my podcast, I started to interview people who started to criticize the, uh, that research a little bit and then start to have a conversation around it. Uh, I, I had another one recently where we talked about drug uh, the, the testing that's happening because there's a whole bunch of problems with that. And there's not an easy way for a layperson to do it, but I think there's a lot of great voices in the integrative space. And I think they're starting to like Mark Hyman, I think is a, is a, a great voice. And, and he's someone you can listen to. I think a lot of the influencers are great because they're finding people out there that are doing things and, uh, and then sh- shining a light on them. And um, it's a, social and it's a medical and it's a scientific and it's a collaborative kind of process where the whole world's kind of doing this together right now. And we're, we're literally making it happen and science is being shared and people that were in silos are all of a sudden those are all coming down. And, 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 and what I think is going to happen is that there's a friend of mine's developing a platform that's going to try to answer this question. And so what's going to happen is there's going to be evolving technology, evolving experiences that we have that begin to bring data in. I'm in Silicon Valley, so they always say, he who has the most data wins. And so then, uh, and so it's going to be an evolving and kind of nuanced thing. Uh, I wish I had a better answer than that. Two, two resources that uh, people, listeners might find useful on the sort of question about evaluating medical claims that these are ones I just recently came across that I don't, I can't fully endorse them yet, but they come from sources that I trust. So I think they're probably really good, but I haven't, I can't fully sign off on them yet, but worth checking out. Uh, one is a book called Bad Science 
by a guy named, I think it's Ben Goldacre. Uh, and then the other one, there's a, another doctor who's, uh, has a great podcast that I really like, uh, in addition to Matt's. His name is Peter Atia. And, uh, he has a series on studying studies. And it's basically oh, yeah. thinking about how to uh, evaluate medical studies and scientific studies that you come across so that when you see some medical claim, you can, you know, kind of think for yourself about how, how, how legit is it basically. Uh, so we'll link to all that in the show notes, but those are two that, that I have come across that came up in my research for this conversation that I wanted to at least mention. Yeah. He's really good. Peter is really good. Yeah. I really like his stuff. He's, he's yeah. got some great stuff. Great podcast as well. Yeah. Um, so a couple of rapid fire questions for you. Um, the first one is, uh, you know, you talked, to, you talked earlier in, in our conversation about, uh, wanting to make a, a certain meaningful impact and how you, you, you feel like you're starting to and, and you can start to see, see that, see, see that, uh, that arc in your, in your work. What is that impact you want to have? I want to make a really big impact in, in the space of depression, anxiety, PTSD. And I want to make people aware that they have way more control over those things than they, than they thought they did. And then I want to basically introduce the concept of some genre of a practice that they can deploy to make that dream a reality. I love it. I love it. Uh, and then w- in recent memory, and that could be a week, it can be a year, whatever. What is a small change that you've made that's had an outsized impact on you or your life or how you show up? It's interesting. I do like two or three small changes like every single day. It's like, it's like (laughs) (laughs) Um, constantly experimenting. I love it. And, and, and I think that maybe that, maybe that is, it's, it's that, and you know, I I was thinking of the story. There's a, um, there was the, you, you know how people can get an ulcer in their stomach. I think, yeah, it's, uh, it's like bacterial, right? Well, so that's a great, it's perfect. So what happened is the, the idea was that it was from too much acid and, um, stuff like that. And, but the idea was definitely not that it's bacterial. And in fact, yeah, it was like, everybody thought it was like stress and things like that. And so this guy, um, this guy had this idea that was a very alternate idea which is, is that uh, oh, it could be bacteria. And so it was, it was, and so then he had a patient who had that bacteria and then he inoculated himself with it and he got an ulcer. Now, mm-hmm. th- what happens is th- that was such an out of the box idea that um, they tried to kick him out of like the society of gastroenterologists that he was in. And, um, because it was just an anathema to them. And, uh, but he ends up obviously winning a Nobel prize because he totally changes our way that we, we think about gastro, gastroenterology from then on. And so then I, my little thing that I'm trying to do is to basically keep my ears and eyes open for noticing truth 
Hmm. And and then fall doggedly following that, so that because I'm 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 hopeful that I will continue to do that, and then in doing so, there's a whole bunch of things that are currently dogma that will not be dogma in the future, and so then hmm. then finding finding that out because as soon as you find that out and then change your consciousness around that, then that leads to superhuman growth because. When we're trapped in dogmas, is we're super dysfunctional, and now the it's hard to do that because you're contextualizing this problem that we're talking about, which is this that the data, and then what happens when you're starting to look at the science is is that there's an enormous amount of bias. So when you say what is quackery, there are certain people that have a bias that anything that's not what they believe is quackery. Hmm. So then, so then it's a nuance. And now that's the reason that the practice of medicine is so awesome, because then it's just like I, what my approach is going to be new with each new person that comes in, because you're kind of figuring that out. But as you do clinically, you start to get like um, a, a, a certain amount of wisdom that that helps you navigate your way through complex complex situations and so and so then that's i guess that's that is what i'm spending like 100 percent of my time trying to do i love that i love that and so sort of i think riffing off that what is if you could have everyone listening to this start to ask themselves one question what would that question be Okay, so then this is not what I was going to say. This is well, this is what I would say. So then, um, it, given given a given given a situation, the question is, what is the funniest way to respond to this? <laughs> You're asking yourself, like I, I've been hearing. Um, like I've been watching comedians in cars with coffee and stuff like that, you know. Okay. And so what happens is, is comedians are just sitting there and they're asking, what's the funniest, like the funniest response to this? It mm-hmm. turns out the funniest response is always going to be the least triggered and the most true response. Huh. So if you're trying to like hack truth, you, you may actually get closer to it from comedians than philosophers. i love it and then it also has the side effect of keeping you like out of fight or flight which is which is to keep you in the super high performance state i love it i love it we're laughing and kicking ass at the same time that's that's i want that to be my new tagline (laughs) (laughs) it's perfect all right well matt this has been so much fun thank you so much for taking the time to be here uh just in closing where can people reach out to you uh if they want to learn more about you or your practice or contribute to what you're up to in any way yeah so the podcast is at bio reset podcast and then uh our website's bioreset.com and uh we're in um campbell california in northern california and would be delighted you can call and uh talk to us and figure out what we're up to and we'd love to uh, connect with you. Awesome. We'll link to all that stuff in the show notes, but Matt, thank you so much for being here. An absolute pleasure. Oh, you're the best. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. That helps us reach way more people and build this community up. 
For show notes, links to the resources, and everything else we discussed, please go to enliven.fm. Feel free to reach out with questions, feedback, or just to say hello by emailing connect at enliven.fm. Be sure to subscribe, and until next time, my friends, leave them better than you found them. We'll see you soon.